It is now 3 p.m. Stay with us for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is the last day of April. Yes, let's see, 30 days, that's September, April, June, and November. Aha, it's National Poetry Month. I think I must begin with a little poem, just because, just because... Because I'm going to be talking about Gertrude Stein today, so I think I'll begin with a little poem about her uh, affection for Alice B. Toklas, uh, one of the great love affairs of the 20th century, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. Let's see, it's in a little, uh, a little book, yes. Uh, poetry and grammar, here it is. Uh, if you hear her snore, it is not before you love her. You love her so that to be her bow is very lovely. She is sweetly there, and her curly hair is very lovely. She is sweetly here, and I am very near, and that is very lovely. She is my tender sweet, and her little feet are stretched out well, which is a treat and very lovely. Her little tender nose is between her little eyes which close and are very lovely. She is very lovely and mine, which is very lovely. For years and years, I have used a Gertrude Stein poem every Valentine's Day. It's only uh, five lines, so let me read it to you. I, I have it posted on my wall somewhere done in uh, calligraphy. It's called A Very Valentine. Very fine is my valentine, very fine and very mine. Very mine is my valentine, very mine and very fine. Very fine is my valentine and mine. Very fine, very mine, and mine is my Valentine. <laughs> Let's see. I have talked to you about Gertrude Stein in the past, and usually 
I find myself explaining her, which is probably not the best way to approach Gertrude Stein. Uh, it's the strangest thing. Uh, she doesn't want to be understood exactly, but I think she wants to be what she calls she wants to be historical. She wants to be part of history. Uh, let's see. I think that it was all about being and thinking. Gertrude Stein wrote, If you are a thinker, you will change the language. You will not use the words the way the others do. Well, what she did had not been done before, and so some resented it and some laughed at it, and almost no one would publish it. See, there was no money in it. Well, until she was nearly 60, and even then, it wasn't for what she considered her serious work. It was for that charming pseudo-autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which Gertrude Stein wrote because Alice Toklas couldn't find the time. <laughs> this book was published in 1933. It's a collection of anecdotes and stories about the eccentricities of her many friends in Paris. I love it that that book was published the same year I was born. Uh, I think of them as my godparents, all those painters and poets of the time. Uh, now, that book was charming and humorous and original, but as Gertrude Stein herself said, remarks are not literature. Now, about that that world of the Paris expats, expatriates, uh, let's see, Sherwood Anderson wrote about it. He said, it was a time of a kind of renaissance in the arts, in literature, a robin's egg renaissance. It had, perhaps, a pale blue tinge. It fell out of the nest. It may be that we should all have stayed in Chicago. <laughs> anyway, Gertrude said, Paris was the place that suited those of us that were to create the 20th century art and literature, naturally. I think, uh, I think today I would like to concentrate on, well, I'm going to get around to my favorite novel by Gertrude Stein. I think it's the one to start with. It's called Malantha. It's part of Three Lives. Uh, everyone knows that Gertrude Stein found a muse in Alice B. Toklas. That was her wife for life, she said. Now, a muse who can say yes to your writing, and who is also a good cook, <laughs> is enough to turn anyone into a genius. I have an essay here in front of me that I published years ago about Gertrude. It's called uh, Genius is What Happens When You're Looking for a Way Out. At first, her work was the way out. Then, it was a way in. Finally, for Stein, writing was a religion. In her worldview, consciousness was a religion. As she said that in the 20th century, consciousness had replaced the soul. Now, at Radcliffe, she had a, a William James as teacher, and... Uh, 
he told her that any final or total attitude toward life could just as well be called a religion. So I guess in that sense her work is religious because it is forever concerned with finalities. Yes, yes, she always said she wished to be historical, and now she is. Of course, there is the question of meaning. Did she mean it, all those things she wrote? Did she make sense of it, the meaning of it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But really, finally, it does not really make any difference. Uh, <laughs> are there too many theirs there? Is it there where she is or isn't, or did she make that up? Sometimes, just as she says, it does make sand. Now, if you drive down the uh, the uh, the street, Adeline Street in Berkeley, uh, you pass Alcatraz Avenue, and you will see two big signs. One is in Berkeley, and the sign says here. And then I think about. I don't know, about 15 feet. I'm not sure the distance between. But right over the border into Oakland, there's another huge sign that says, There. That's the there there in Oakland, if you ever want to drive out and see it. You go down Adeline. You head as, let's see, would that be south on Adeline? Heading towards Oakland, right, and uh, past Alcatraz. And there you will see the there that's there. Of course, the question is, where is there and where is it not? Certainly not in Oakland. Gertrude did love California. She loved space and Isadora Duncan. And She said that here on this coast, there was more space where people were not than space where they were. Right, that's, that's it, yes. More space where people were not than space where they were. I see that would be in the late 19th century. She said that was very lovely. Things were always very lovely or very interesting or they weren't. She wasn't into adjectives. She told Ernest Hemingway to cut out the adjectives so he became a very masculine writer. She was his father figure when he was young. Anyway, she went after the nouns after she'd finished with the adjectives. She wrote a little uh, book called Tender Buttons in 1914. Uh, she explains, in Tender Buttons, I struggled with the ridding of myself of nouns. I knew that nouns must go in poetry as they had gone in prose, if anything that is everything was to go on meaning something. And then on and on she wrote about the feeling and the verbs and the meaning and the nouns and the meaning in the morning and the feeling in the evening. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of repeating in Gertrude Stein. I think of it as, well, as if it were the begats in the Bible. I confess that I have skipped over some of the begats. They do sometimes go on for pages and pages. 
How many gays are there in it? She's always writing how they were all very gay. Some folks think that the word gay was given to us by Gertrude Stein. I have no idea. There's many, many uh, opinions about that. She did use the word. Uh, yes, always everyone was very, very gay, especially if they weren't married. Yes. Anyway, Stein wrote, What people love, they repeat, and what they repeat, they love. Think of all the children's books and the way the uh, the words are repeated in uh, if they're not rhymed, you know. I think of the the very first books for children in which the kids like to uh, uh, read it with you, you know. Of course, Gertrude Stein does have run-ons and ons. Uh, they are kind of hypnotizing. I liked best the repeating in the opera Four Saints in Three Acts. I love the chorus, the wed, dead, dead, wed, dead chorus that goes on repeating those two words. Yes, that says something. Yes, a long gay book has hundreds and hundreds of gays on page after page. Some say that's it, right, that that's how we got gay, but is that a message? I don't think it's a message. Uh, I think the message is about freedom, about structured anarchy, the anarchy that's at the bottom of things. Uh, she wrote a great big book called The Making of Americans that was in the beginning. In that book, she tried to get to the bottom nature of everyone who is coming to be someone, to find out all the kinds there are and were of every kind of a one, uh, while she herself was only all in one, one who is not coming to be one who is a kind of a one. Of course, at first she was. She was the usual kind of a one, a lonely one. A woman, too, a lonely lesbian woman, born in Victorian 1874, and a Jew, too. She wore dark dresses and collars up to her ears, overweight, and when she was in love, often there was a triangle, and that hurt. She looked to learn to live, and part of her heart, her her young heart, is in the black flower, Malanta, a story in her 1902 book, Three Lives. It's subtitled, Each One As She May. Now, I think Malanta is easily taught in high school. Uh, it's a kind of dramatic monologue. It is the history of the process of a passion. It is about the search of a young black woman to find fulfillment or anyway to get knowledge of being. She looks for this knowledge in other people, so at last she loses herself. Someone said to me once about that Melantha girl, well, she needed to get into therapy. <laughs> yes, I said, 
psychotherapy is the study of self-deception. But fortunately, psychotherapy did not come along until after literature today, of course. Psychotherapy has damn near done away with literature. But never mind, we still have the theater. Gertrude Stein wrote in everybody's autobiography, One of the things that happened at the end of the 19th century was that nobody knew the difference between a novel and a play. And now the movies have helped them not to know. But although there is none, there really is. And that is the reason I write plays and not novels. Melantha is a play in its way, although Gertrude calls it a story. When asked about this story, Gertrude said, Well, now, this is the beginning of modern American fiction. She writes, In beginning writing, I wrote a book called Three Lives, written in 1902. I wrote a Negro story called Melantha. In that, there was a constant recurring and beginning. There was a marked direction of being in the present, although naturally I had been accustomed to past, present, and future. And why? And why? Because the composition forming around me was a prolonged present. Now, uh, I go on in my essay at great length about how Gertrude Stein arrived at this notion of a prolonged present. Uh, <laughs> it's very confusing, and I suggest that you go read a book called, uh, read an essay of Stein's called, What Are Masterpieces and Why Are There So Few of Them? <laughs> that will help you with this prolonged present, uh, continuous present, some people called it, uh, it takes each successive moment or passage as a completely new thing, as with Mozart. Uh, anyway, Gertrude Stein calls this beginning again. I think what's more important for beginners is to notice that uh, Melantha is a narrative it is conventional in the sense that it's a tragic love story ending in death from consumption. So it's available to the traditional literary taste and to educated emotions. Uh, Carl Van Vechten said, uh, quote, Perhaps this is the first American story in which the Negro is regarded as a human being, not as an object for condescending compassion or derision. Okay, that's written in the first decade of the 20th century. They're still using the word Negro, of course. Uh, yes, Van Vechten gives a lot of advice on how to read Gertrude Stein. I would just say she must be read aloud. Some people say she must be read one word at a time, very slowly. I just think you can you can read it aloud and pretend it is a play. Uh, I read little bits of Gertrude Stein as a schoolgirl, and I knew she was supposed to be avant-garde and witty. And, of course, all the stuff about uh, hanging out in Paris and all her friends there. Uh, I didn't really feel moved or 
uh, I, the emotions didn't come into play for me when I read the work. Uh, I loved the humor. I saved little little quips and bits, you know. Uh, she would comment on Ezra Pound. She would say, he was a village explainer, which is all very well if you are a village, but if not, not. Uh, the first time I felt the power of Stein was once in the late 50s. I was staying alone at a friend's house, and I couldn't find anything to play on the... Did we have stereos in those days? Yes, Stein's Opera Four Saints in Three Acts with music by Virgil Thompson. Wow. Now, I don't know whether it was Virgil Thompson or Gertrude Stein. I really don't. I just remember the shock, the strangeness, Stein calls it. Uh, oh, later I, I made up stuff about what lines meant. Some of the uh, lines like pigeons on the grass, alas, and a magpie in the sky. I said, oh, yes, that's a vision of the Holy Ghost, blah, blah. <laughs> Gertrude Stein says that the language must be exciting. She said, not excited. That's not what we want. It has to be exciting. She wrote here, yes, it takes weather to make saints. And there was St. Teresa standing half in and half out of doors. And she goes on, yes, uh, question is, whether you can kill 10,000 Chinamen by pressing a button? St. Teresa, not interested. I think uh, I still use the lines, I use them for titles, lines like, When this you see, remember me. Virgil Thompson's uh, thundering score just grabbed me. Uh, it was a sensibility I had never known. It was certainly not romantic, but... It felt sensual beyond belief. That's what I found in Malanta. Uh, it gave me chills. I remember my teaching years. I like to put on the uh, chalkboard the lines in Stein's opera, The Mother of Us All. The Mother of Us All, of course, was Susan B. Anthony. And in that opera... Uh, Susan B. Anthony says, Do you know because I tell you so? Or do you know? Do you know? Indeed, indeed. Uh, each one, as she may, is the subtitle of Malanta. It's the second story in Gertrude Stein's book, Three Lives. I like to compare the book, the story, with Toni Morrison's Sula. Some people have compared it to Madame Bovary. Uh, now, Sula is written by Toni Morrison three quarters of a century later. Melantha, dated 1902. Sula has a rose tattoo over her eye. She, too, is a pariah, an outcast like Melantha. Her mythology is heroic. In both these books, a woman seeks knowledge, the fatal fruit of the tree. I think that Melantha is a prose poem, and it's also the most penetrating sex book I've ever read. 
it it sets forth parallel conversations between woman and man. Yes, Jeff, Jeff, the good man, Jeff, and Melantha. Talk, talk, runs on and on forever, but it's like the railroad tracks. It's endless and never connecting. It's not romantic, no. It is theatrical. Whenever I hear actors reading Melantha and her lover, the conventional Dr. Jeff Campbell, I am astonished at how haunting and heartbreaking their words are. No matter how hard they try, they cannot touch minds. Melantha is split. Yes, what is it Gertrude Stein says? Says, yes, she says, one day I will split in two, you. Mm Mm-hmm. One of these days you will split in two, you, you. Melantha looks like, in appearance, looks like her pale and self-effacing mother. But she feels like her black and breakneck father. Always, Melantha only finds more ways to be in trouble. That's what they called it in the old days. Hers is the melancholy of the modern soul. Her woman lover, Jane Harden, begins by dominating Melantha. Then their roles are reversed. Jane Harden falls away into liquor and hard living. Sula, too, has a female counterpart, not a lover so much as a friend who represents what is best in herself. (laughs) Is it perhaps the self we are looking for rather than a significant other? Now, Melantha's real love, true love, is her friend Rose. Rose Johnson takes Melantha's love but never really returns it. When Rose sees her husband Sam turning to Melantha, she rejects her altogether. This for Melantha is the death blow. (laughs) Rose is a very pragmatic soul. Uh, She says, this is Rose Johnson. She says, uh, Aha, yes, Rose Johnson did not see it the same way Melantha did. And this is the explanation for that. Yes, Melantha told Rose one day how a woman whom she knew had killed herself because she was so blue. Melantha said sometimes she thought this was the best thing for her herself to do. Rose did not see it the least bit that way, and she says, I don't see Melantha. Why you should talk like you would kill yourself just because you're blue. I'd never kill myself, Melantha, just because I was blue. I'd maybe kill somebody else, Melantha, because I was blue, but I'd never kill myself. If I ever killed myself, Melantha, it'd be by accident. And if I ever killed myself by accident, Melantha, I'd be awful sorry. And this essay goes on in great detail. Uh, I wanted to read it all to you. Uh, If you need validation, 
F. Scott Fitzgerald carried a copy of Three Lives with him wherever he went. Uh, Richard Wright loved it. I guess I'll have to save the rest of Gertrude Stein for another day. Next week, we're in Marathon. I have a book for you next week. Uh, it's called Stolen Lives, Young People's War Diaries from World War I to Iraq. You may find that interesting and you may want to subscribe to KPFA and get a copy of Stolen Voices. This has been Jennifer Stone. I will be back next Tuesday at this same time. Till then, as Gertrude Stein says, take it easy. And if you can't take it easy, take it as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow. Greenwald knows there is no journalist in America who has exposed the truth about U.S. government militarism more bravely, relentlessly, more valuably than Jeremy Scahill. His dirty wars is highly gripping of unparalleled importance in understanding the destruction being sown in our names. The fearless Jeremy Scahill, author of Blackwater and the New Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield, We'll be in Oakland at First Congregational Church, 2501 Harrison at 27th Street, Friday evening, May 10th, 7.30 p.m. There's wheelchair access and free parking. Advanced tickets, 12 bucks through brownpapertickets.com or supported bookstores. Full info is on the KPFA website. Sabrina Jacobs will be hosting. That's Jeremy Scahill, May 10th. We have the obligation at least to know what we're doing in the world. See you there. Thank you.